welcome to Spiritual Wanderlust, where we explore our interior life in search of the sacred. Many of us will travel the whole world to find ourselves, but here we'll follow those longings within to our spiritual and emotional landscapes. In each episode, we'll talk with inspiring guests, contemplative teachers, embodiment experts, neuropsychologists, and mystics. With a blend of ancient wisdom and modern science, along with a healthy dash of mischief, we'll deep dive into divine intimacy and what it means to be whole. I'm your host, Kelly Deutsch. Hi, everyone. Kelly Deutsch here. Welcome to our next episode of Spiritual Wanderlust. Today we have joining us Clark Massey, who is the founder of a Catholic inner city ministry called A Simple House. And Clark and I met years ago when I spent a year volunteering at A Simple House after college. Uh, Clark founded the ministry back in 2003 uh, when he left his job in finance to go live amongst the poor. They now have houses both in Washington, D.C. and in Kansas City. And I'm excited to have Clark here today. Um, Clark, welcome. And to start us off, would you mind sharing a bit with us about um, the inspiration to start Simple House? Um, maybe a little bit of your backstory and how it all began. Good, yeah. So we founded uh, Simple House 2003, Washington, D.C., the idea was to kind of have a voluntary poverty ministry where no one would make a living from the ministry and kind of live in the rough parts of town, uh, Southeast Washington, DC, and try to meet people as friends, you know, go into people's homes, try to help them wherever they're at. Don't have a ministry. We were trying to purposely um, non-institutional, non like we weren't going to be a place where we sat behind a desk where you brought us a form and we said, do you qualify? You know, and um, we're just going to meet people, talk to them, and then just kind of let things grow and have about as much, I still think even today, we have as much freedom, uh, our missionaries have as much freedom as anyone's ever had to determine how to help people and how to befriend people and love people. And that's one thing that I've always been struck by, you know, I mean, while I was volunteering even, that... Um, I remember once being at someone's house and their social worker came over and their total demeanor changed. You know, there, it was all yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. And as soon as they left, they're like, oh, <laughs> you know, and they right. could just let their hair down. And they never, uh, most people didn't even know the name of the ministry. It was just like, oh, Clark and them are here. <laughs> like, and I, that struck me so much because it, it was more um, human, you know, and it was very non-institutional. And I think that's, how did you come up with that? Where did that come from? Right. I, I even think in a perfect world, the ministry wouldn't even have a name. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think we have to have a name in order to have a website, in order to like fundraise, right? But like, I really want it to be Clark befriending or Julia or Sarah, whoever the person is just befriending, you know? Mm. Um, the goal of our ministry, kind of where it came from was I was a member of two different ministries. I was a member of a ministry that was going into the projects uh, on Thursday nights and doing Bible studies for kids. And it was very kind of organic. Like we had a basement room in a project building. And then we'd send these people we called Pied Pipers and they'd just walk through the neighborhood and all these kids would start following them, you know? And then we'd have this Bible study that would be absolutely nuts. Like um, we had to have bouncers for the Bible study. 
you know, okay. and, and like if you could hold those kids attention for 15 minutes and make it look anything like order, it was an, you were an amazing teacher. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, like there were pipes on the ceiling and people would literally hang on the ceiling, you mm-hmm. know, during, during, you know, while working with the kids. And it was a great thing, but what struck me was I got to go door to door and meet the mothers of the children mm. because everyone in the neighborhood was a single parent family and it was all women. And when you would knock on their doors, it would be like, they couldn't believe you were there. Like, what are you doing here? You know? Um, and I think it was because they were getting excellent help from institutions. Like they were getting food stamps, they were getting housing, they were getting, you know, all of these things to help them get along, but they were getting very little help from the church or just from friends, you know? And the other ministry I was doing at the time was a Catholic worker house, which is kind of this tradition of having a house that's just very personal and um, welcoming people one-on-one as friends and having them eat at your own table and shower in your own shower. And so we were running a little house near DuPont Circle in DC that was a little bit rougher place than it is today, um, serving like a couple hundred people on a Monday, Wednesday, or Friday, you know? Um, but those guys were getting a lot of church group help. And I found that they were kind of closed to friendship and relationship. Like they were very used to like group from Iowa came in and cooked for us and they were very happy to see them and we could have like the three, four line conversation with them, right? But they wouldn't have necessarily the deeper conversation. Whereas like when you went in and met these mothers, they were just like pouring forth, Mm. you know? So the goal of Simple House was to create a ministry where we could really help those families because those mothers were the ones really fighting the good fight. I mean, they were in the worst neighborhood with the worst schools with almost no money trying to keep their kids, you know, trying to raise their kids. Right. And so we wanted to help them in a very personal way that they seemed very open to. And that's kind of where the ministry came from. Yeah. Yeah. And I find your story fascinating too, because I mean, you can't, you left everything from the financial world, right? I mean, how did that come about? That must've been quite the uh, St. Francis switch. (laughs) I feel, yeah, I feel lame even trying to talk about it, but it's like, there's something in the gospel to me that's like dynamite, Mm. right? And we're always trying to explain away the dynamite. Mm. Like it's hard for the rich to get into the kingdom of heaven. Like every so many years, that verse has to be read in every Catholic church. And then you spend 30 minutes trying to explain why it doesn't say what it says. You know what I mean? Like, and these to me are the most dangerous verses in the Bible and like at least listen to them. Right. So to me, it was like, do I just try Jesus at his word? Do I, there's a lot of, it's weird for me to even say this because I don't even recommend this. It's like, there's a whole lot more ways to go crazy while trying Jesus than for have it work. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But like, And to me, it was like, I really want to be friends with the poor. I really want to know them. Um, And it's worth trying this. And if it fails, it fails and that'll be fine. But it's not worth not trying. Like Mm. not trying didn't feel like an option, Mm. you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. What led to the switch? I mean, was it a pretty um, distinct moment in time or... Did you have, I mean, was there a lot of soul searching involved? I mean, because I think I remember you telling me once, I hope you don't mind me mentioning this. I think you said once that you didn't even own a refrigerator because you just like, 
ate out all the time. Like you didn't need to, you were making plenty oh. of money. <laughs> yeah. Well, I certainly never cooked at home. I had this funny situation where when I was kind of trying out things, I got this apartment and I moved in with my clothes and a sleeping bag and no furniture. And I think this is a great way to do it because most of us, we have like all these possessions and then you try to limit down. You see what you can do without, but it's a different approach when you like kind of start from zero and say, what do I need? And you start adding and you find out you need a fork, you need a shower curtain, you need <laughs> just a few things, you know, right. but you actually do need them, you know? Um, so where was I going with that? I Yeah. Like what led to the switch? What, how did that come about? I don't know how to explain that besides saying, um, I felt like there was something out there that I needed, you know, mm. like a deep call or a deep. And it started when I was in college and um, I didn't really understand faith very well at all. I just thought it was kind of a neat thing that might keep you psychologically healthy. You know, I didn't think of it as something that you'd build your life on or mm. gamble on say. Yeah. Right? Um, and a monk came and gave a talk, and I know I'm talking to a contemplative monk right now, so this is mm -hmm. probably a common interest we all have. Uh, a monk came, who's a Benedictine monk, and gave a talk and said, hey, you know, instead of going on spring break, why don't you come to the monastery? And to me, I could not believe how great that sounded. Hmm. Like, I think I had this idea that truth is out there and that if you seriously go and are quiet and search for it, you will find it, you hmm. know? Um, what is the religious tradition where you climb the mountain with a bowl of fruit and give it to the guru? Hmm. I couldn't even say. I think it's some it's either Hindu or some type of yoga tradition or something. But it was this idea that there's this person out there who you can go and like, who's like a guru, you yeah. know, literally a guru, right? So that's what I thought of the monastery as, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then at the time I was living at this hippie co-op called the Sunflower House. Okay. And when I went back there, and said, I just saw this monk and he just invited to go to the monastery. People all thought it was great. And when I went to my Catholic friends and said, we have this opportunity to go to the monastery, they were like, no way. Oh, interesting. It is, right? It's like as if they were afraid of it. Hmm. But then like the hippie co-op I was living in was like, that sounds amazing. And literally after I went, I went back and started bringing people from the co-op. Mm -hmm. You know, um, so there was this like idea of like wanting to find the core of meaning or the truth and kind of wanting to go to this like monastic idea of doing it. Mm. And I think somehow with me, I thought that truth is with the poor, kind of based mm. on the Beatitudes of blessed be the poor, like the poor of this treasure that we need to unlock. And like, and when they said blessed be the poor, they didn't mean this like um, beautiful poor person who's extremely moral, who, hmm. you know, has all these virtues. They actually mean the poor who are, have always been the poor, like the drunk on the side of the road, the, hmm. um, you see people who are very problematic issues, hmm. you know, and that somehow within there, there is something special. And so somehow to me, my kind of like monastic urge was to go to the poor, to love the poor, and to somehow find what they had. Hmm. Hmm. 
Yeah, I, I'm, as I'm listening here, I'm um, picking out some of the various influences, um, just the monastic influence. It sounds like there was a little bit of maybe the um, experience at Catholic Worker and some other ministries that you're like, I like some of these things, but I also want to do something differently. What else would you name, whether as figures, movements, saints, other people who are inspirations or influences to the ministry? I'm going to kind of go off what you're saying a little bit, a little bit different direction in that <laughs> I remember deeply that my grandfather was very holy hmm. and he was a farmer and he, I don't know if he made it all the way through high school, mm -hmm. right? But he'd, he had a bunch of kids and he just spent a lot of time alone in a field, you mm -hmm. know? And um, he was the type of guy that you could like say an idea to about God or about truth or about life. And he would know if it's right or wrong, but he wouldn't necessarily know how to intellectually break it down. Mm -hmm. Like you could almost like encourage you if you knew you were on the right track or he'd be quiet if you weren't on the right track, mm -hmm. you know? And then I remember going to college and meeting people and seeing this kind of thing that was in me too, that's like very proud. Like we have it figured out. We're worried about the United Nations here, right? And then I'm thinking of my grandpa who, doesn't worry about the United Nations at all, but seems to know something about life. Mm, yeah, like wisdom right? versus knowledge almost. That would be a way to put it, right? Mm -hmm. But in a way we disdained the wisdom mm. because we disdain because he was uneducated or he wasn't sure. with it and he wasn't concerned with these big important issues that we actually had no in, uh, influence on. You know, mm. he was concerned with what he actually had before him, mm. you know? And I feel like that's part of what the poor have. Mm -hmm. you know that this is like part of what the treasure of the poor is and so I really wanted to be personal like Dorothy Day and like the Catholic worker I really wanted to make real friends with the poor the way St. Paul said mm. you know not just help um, but be real friends and part of being real friends is authentically sharing mm. uh, helping them <laughs> you know sharing of your goods and sharing of your spiritual life and all these other things so it was really kind of like this idea of like kind of breaking that down and just getting to the most basic form of helping people. Yeah, yeah. It reminds me of, was that um, Oscar Romero who said, you say you love the poor, tell me their name. There's some, yes. And there's something like this that when you try to help all the poor or quote fix the problem, you actually end up fixing nothing. Yeah. You know? Talk to me a little bit more about that because I feel like there are some ministries that, you know, like, I don't know, Catholic aid organizations or any kind of aid organizations that help millions. Whereas, you know, I don't know what your guys' scope is, if it's dozens or hundreds or something like that. But talk to me about the difference between those two, because I could see some people saying like, well, there are others who impact more. Right. And I think that, um, I think this is very interesting in the context of Mother Teresa. Like Mother <laughs> Teresa is a big influence on us too, but she would uh, pour resources into someone who was dying. Mm. Like she'd pick someone out of the street who's dying who has three days left to live. Mm -hmm. And when she died, I remember picking up the New York Times and you went, I went to the opinion page where they're like eulogizing her and they like had equal space between the negative and the positive on Mother Teresa. Hmm. And it just blew me away that there was this huge negative article on Mother Teresa and, you know, but I, I'm glad they put it there. I think it, I think it clarified things. It was like, it was this article of how Mother Teresa is not actually fixing the problem. Mother Teresa needs to be training new engineers in India. Mother Teresa mm. shouldn't be pouring resources into the person 
who's dying on the street, you mm. know? But I think that what Mother Teresa, I think that critique is just based on a different eschatology, mm. you know? Meaning like if Mother Teresa believes that these people are eternal, then every act of true love is an eternal act and in a sense has value into eternity. Mm. Whereas if you believe that life is truly over when life is over uh, physically, then you're just working to maximize consumption or enjoyment mm. or happiness like within that span and anything that's not maximizing that looks ridiculous to you, mm. right? And so I think that Simple House is trying to center itself on that eternity that like every great act of love is eternal and will like have this eternal benefit. And I have faith in that. And I have more faith in that than I have faith in getting this kid to go to college. Mm. <laughs> Although yeah. I'm not against getting the kid to go to college. <laughs> yeah. I just won't do that at the expense of the other. Yeah. So how do you, where does that fit in your grand scheme of things as far as working for systemic change? Because I feel like that's an important thing, but is that just not what your ministry does or yeah. How do you relate to that question? I, I think most people need to make systemic change secondary to personal change. Hmm. And I think that if you're doing everything correct, helping the persons, you know, then you will also start addressing the systematic. But if you skip the persons, somehow it backfires. Mm. Um, I believe that we're a justice ministry inadvertently, but we're primarily a love ministry. Mm. Uh, all the time we're fighting for justice. Uh, there's like little issues we have going on right now where we're even gonna hire a lawyer for someone to make sure that they aren't railroaded, you know? Mm. Um, but I'm really doing it because I love that person. I'm not doing it because I'm trying to get a systemic reform, mm, but I mm -hmm. want, I guess, I, I don't know how to say both that I want systemic reform and I'm willing to work for it, but the person's always first and love is always first. Mm, yeah. That whatever systemic work you are doing is born out of a loving relationship. It sounds like. Right. Mm, yeah. That's lovely. I believe it's lovely, but unpopular. <laughs> sure. <laughs> but Understandably. I mean, especially when there is so much that stands to be changed and needs to be changed. I mean, I'm sure you see that all the time in working with, you know, underprivileged populations and seeing just how it seems like all of the odds are stacked against them, you know, how difficult it is um, in so many. Well, it, 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 I, I have two thoughts. Like, I want to talk about systemic change, but one thought is, I just think there's a lot of ways people could radically improve their lives right now without a systemic change. Mm. You know, for most of the people I work with, you know, stop using a substance or um, apply yourself to a job. A lot of good things could happen for that person very mm -hmm. immediately, right? Mm -hmm. um, but then the other thing that's kind of in the water right now is, I feel like there's this like way of judging all history as conflict, hmm. you know, conflict between groups and they could be races, they could be uh, economic groups, but it's, it's explaining all history as power struggle, hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And I think fundamentally Christ needs to break that. And I don't believe fundamentally that's what history is. Hmm. I don't believe that Martin Luther King was just fighting for power struggle between races. Hmm. I think he was fighting for something deeper and more right and more mm -hmm. loving than that, you know? So what's weird though, is that like, 
as that way of thinking has become more popular, just seeing all history as this power struggle, our ministry looks more silly. Hmm. I believe it actually attacks the core of what we do. And I think it also kind of attacks the core of Christ in the sense that Christ is a person at a time intervening in history and radically changing it, not for power. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. and, and I think as followers of Christ, that's kind of our job too, mm. you know? So to, to, to explain everything in terms of just struggle and power and systemic oppression, I think is, doesn't work with our worldview totally. It, it ends up making um, the church the uh, arm of Western spiritual uh, colonialization or imperialism. Mm-hmm. You know, that like missionaries are just Western imperialists on this. We're in the spiritual arm. <laughs> Western yeah. imperialism. And I think that that's just not true. And I, I think that that, you know, and, and so I feel a need to reject that. Mm, yeah, yeah. And I mean, that's especially living in the Northwest now. I mean, that's such a, a cry of people is like, we need to decolonize Christianity, you know, because there is that um, sense of, I don't know, white Protestant domination um, that needs to just spread itself. Um, hmm. I think there's this interesting thing like Geronimo, I don't really understand the history of this that well, but Geronimo, when he kind of did his last stand, he was speaking Spanish Hmm. and he was Catholic and he had all his kids baptized, Hmm. you know? So there was a sense in which we weren't really just fighting. Like it wasn't just like, The, the story of human history is far more complicated. Sure. You know, like there's a lot of biases that are happening that aren't what they appear. Um, I don't know how to unpack that fully. Yeah, yeah. For those who are just joining us, I'm talking with Clark Massey, who is the founder of A Simple House, which is a Catholic inner city ministry. And so we've been talking about um, his influences, background, how he founded this ministry or organization, this group of friends who go about loving the poor. And um, Clark, I'm curious if you would, if you have any stories that are top of mind as far as um, how working with the poor, some of these specific friendships and relationships that you've developed over the years have changed you. Before... I did Simple House and it was very important that I think that Simple House is non-professional, that like I have to earn money doing other things. You're seeing the back of my workshop behind me right now, you know. Um, it kind of tries to create purity of heart. And I think before I did Simple House, I didn't feel like I lived in purity of heart. I didn't feel like I'd really tried or given everything yet, hmm. you know. And somehow getting in that space allows peace, hmm. you know. Can you tell me what you mean by purity of heart? It's kind of a state where you feel like you're trying to do the right thing. You believe you've tried your best and you're kind of leaving it out on the field, Hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, or, and you're not like having to second guess yourself all the time or consciously critique yourself all the time. Hmm. I'm not doing a great definition of it because it's such a mysterious concept. Yeah. It sounds like it has to do with authenticity and living in alignment with like who you are and how you're made. Right. Like we're almost always living in denial of something, like some hmm. issue we don't want to deal with, some problem we have that we don't want to confront, right? And I think that if you live a life committed to dealing with the problems you don't want to confront, um, 
you you have this sense of peace or purity of heart. Hmm. That's just not really answering your question, Kelly. I'm trying to think. <laughs> <of it>. Yeah, well, <laughs> I'm just I, taking I was, it new directions. <laughs> that's okay. That's okay. I was curious if you had any stories to share and the ways that um, maybe taking a cue from that. How how is working with the poor? How has that helped you have a greater purity of heart, a greater authenticity? Helped you be more Clark? Well, I'm thinking of this time I was at the Catholic Worker right before Simple House started. And the Catholic Worker is this kind of, it was a little house. We were sheltering seven homeless guys. And, you know, three days a week, we had an open house of hospitality where hundreds of people would come in and we'd make soup. We'd let them use our washer dryer or whatever. But I was in that house and I realized I was kind of getting dumber. Like I was kind of forgetting my, like I have a degree in math and I was kind of forgetting what I knew. <laughs> and my clothes were starting to wear out. And I was maybe, I, I just felt like I started to discover I was proud of things about myself I didn't know I was proud of. Hmm. And I was also getting tempted to things that were like, I thought things I hadn't been tempted to before. And I was in this kind of spiritual crisis and um, I really believed in what we did, but in applying myself to it, I was getting humbled pretty bad. Hmm. You know, like, like people aren't necessarily grateful when you help them, hmm. you know, and people can yell at you and curse you out and um, you can try to do the right thing and you end up, and, but, you're, but like we'd all say, oh, well, you have to do the thankless job. Of course, I'd just, I'd just carry that cross, right? But like, I was finding that it was actually really bothering me. And I, my mind just inadvertently started to try to think of like ways I was like better than other people. Hmm. And I, as soon as you realize you're having that thought pattern, you know, you're being an idiot. You know what I mean? Like, you know, that pride is like trying to get you. Right. Mm -hmm. And then I'm, ha as I'm having that thought pattern, I start thinking that like, well, I'm made by God. I'm made at the beginning and God loves me. And I felt like great peace with that thought when that came over me, I was like laying in my bed. And then I thought, and so are, is every jerk living in this house. <laughs> so is that jerk who just yelled at me today, you know, mm. made by God and God loves him. And so then it was like both this like great, like exaltation and then this great boom humility of like mm -hmm. and so is everyone everyone's special Clark right you know and then I had this second thing I thought and like but I'm kind of like see God and I'm trying to know and I'm trying to welcome him back in my life trying to be redeemed and you know all these things you know have this relationship with Christ and God and and then uh and then I thought and I need to hope and pray that every single person in this house even the Hitlers of the world have that same experience, mm. you know? Um, I need to humbly pray that all of them have that experience too. And it was just this idea of our specialness. It's like, we're all the center of the universe. It's like, God is so infinite that he can make us all the center of the universe. <laughs> mm. um, I don't know. I don't know how to 
explain that any different, but there was something in there that a lot of freedom came from and trying to, to like kind of recenter oneself in that and just being, you know, gods and also knowing that everyone else is gods. Mm. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Take you out of that center of the universe in some way or recognizing that we all are kind of in some way. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I think that maybe, we're so infinitely loved. Maybe is the way to put right, it. Right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Trying to give a ministry story so people could actually understand what we do. Um, yeah. An, yeah. An, ex, an example from a couple years ago was there's kind of a, we, we usually work through networking. Like once you meet some poor people, you actually find that poor people are some of the most generous people in the world. You know, like we'll meet people who are feeding the kids from the apartment next door and they only have a couple of days of food and they don't know what they're going to do after that, mm. you know? Yeah. Um, and we had a, a homeless guy we used to follow around and um, follow around me. I was his friend and he would go from camp to camp and he would introduce us to all the people in the camp. And it was a great way to meet people who maybe were ready or maybe really wanted that or needed that friendship or could really receive. And so it was just kind of neat to like follow him around the city. And I remember one time um, he had a relative die. He was from a small town in Missouri. Hmm. And we had to debate what we were going to do, you know, and I think I think we found this out on Easter morning a few years ago that he was underneath a bridge. It was raining and his relative had died. And he was just super drunk, just crying his eyes out. Right. And um, we ended up bringing him up, putting him in the van and uh, driving him. You know, I think we took him to the ER at first. And uh, a cop got watched us do it and started following us the whole way. And we were kind of, I was terrified the whole time because the guy was drunk and not buckled in and we were going to get in trouble if he pulled us over, right? Well, the cop kind of peeled off in second. And I think he was basically making sure we're okay when he saw two people walk underneath the bridge with, with a dude and put him in their van, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I felt like that was a blessing afterwards. But we ended up helping him sober up that day got him some clothes, you know, just, you know, real cheap clothes that were, would make him be presentable for a funeral. And we started driving him back to his hometown, you know, it was like three hours away. And you're kind of nervous whenever you're stuck in a car with somebody you don't know that well, who's, <laughs> but we, we drove him back. And I remember he, he, as we're getting back, the people at the gas stations we stopped at would recognize him. You know, and that wow. was just blowing us away. I was like, who do we have here? Is this guy famous? And he goes, and, and when we get there, my kids are going to try to kidnap me, he told us. And so we walk into this like town square and he's like um, at this, um, at the funeral home. And all of a sudden we see all of these little kids start running across for grandpa. And this is their grandpa who'd been drunk underneath a bridge in Kansas City, mm-hmm. you know, and just you know, and we ended up sure we had to promise him we'd give him a ride home back to the bridge if he wanted it, but his family convinced him to stay in the town. Wow. You know, so I, I don't know. I don't know why I brought that one in particular, but mm-hmm. there's just like our ministry's goal is just to really love people and meet them where they're at. And a lot of times these people are amazing. Yeah. Or I guess they're always amazing. Sometimes we tap into it. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. As you were talking, I was remembering just other things that stick out in my mind that made a simple house distinct 
um, as far as its ministry approach, you know, instead of just like handing out food or material things, um, being able to be involved enough in people's lives that you know um, exactly what they need, or at least have a hunch. And like, I remember one time thinking it was so odd that we were spending ministry money um, to take a, a recent high school graduate out for like a shrimp or steak dinner or something like that. And I was like, well, that seems like a weird use of money. But as I got to know the ministry better, I'm like, no, that's perfect because he's the first kid in his family and generations to graduate high school and to be able to celebrate like that, like his family wouldn't be able to do that. And, or taking kids camping from inner DC, you know, who had never really been out of the metropolitan area and how that, how much that freaked them out, but also was like a really cool experience for them. Well, you know what it's like to have an epic day, like <laughs> from 10 years ago, like how many days do you remember individually? In my mind, if we ever are out with someone and we have an epic day, like that 10 years later, they remember that day, we're doing something right. Yeah, 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 yeah that's lovely. Yeah. And our, and our goal as a ministry is, it's like, be prayed up, have your heart in the right place, go do ministry. And when you come back, any idea you have, we call our slogans like an experiment in Christianity. Pitch your idea. And if you can convince four or five well-meaning Christians that this is a good idea, we will try to do it. Hmm. And it could be as crazy as like, give someone a car to, you know, whatever, a shrimp dinner to just like help with a water bill, you know? Hmm. Mm -hmm. And our goal is to always be a pass through. So we take all the money that comes in and we're trying to pass as much of it through to the poor as possible. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about that. Cause you were the first group that I ever heard of that voluntarily lived corporate poverty. Like, what does that even mean? I think it means two things. I think one, it means that no one's going to make a living, a true living off what we do. And so we've kind of capped, no one's gonna make more than the federal poverty line for being here. Like some people have gotten on to be married like myself and have kids. And so we do like give a little bit higher stipend, but most of our first year missionaries get 200 bucks a month room and board, mm -hmm. you know? Um, but then the other part of corporate poverty is to not invest, to not get like a fat endowment, you know, and to try to spend the money that comes through. You know, mm. the only reason why we tend to save would be as if we think we're going to expand. Mm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that happened once we were in Nicaragua for a few years, and then they kind of had a, I don't want to call it a revolution because it failed, but it became very dangerous and we had to evacuate the mission. But like, if we have something, a project like that we're thinking about doing, we would save, but that's the only reason why we would save. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, if I remember correctly, let me know if you still do this, but it was like, essentially your budget was one third of whatever you have in the bank. That's the goal. The yeah. goal is that we're spending about a third of what we have every month um, or more. Um, there's probably, we, I don't want to act like it's never happened that we have, we haven't always perfectly lived that. <laughs> sure, sure. So, Yeah, but I mean, that's pretty remarkable to be able to depend on donations or divine providence or whatever it is enough that it's like, okay, we only have three months of funding at any given time. Although I can imagine how much that um, provides a sense of solidarity with the poor. Like, yeah, we don't necessarily know where things are coming from either. I it kind of, for me, it came from St. Francis. That's his hmm. attitude, but also um, it's a corporate finance idea, hmm. you know, that like if you have a company that has a large cash reserve, 
you can actually just show that the management's not as productive, you know? And I think it's true in nonprofit world, like nonprofits can get enormous endowments and they actually do less work when they're in that situation. And um, I don't try to be critical of all other groups. I didn't want us to ever fall into this thing where we were hoarding resources and not passing them through mm -hmm. to the poor. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I feel like it allows you a kind of radical generosity where it's like, all right, we have this much fun money for the month, like ministry money, how are we gonna spend it and help those that we love? Yeah, that's really cool. Hmm. I, I remember um, being a volunteer there and um, I don't know if you remember this. I think it was, so it would have been 2008 and I think it was Thanksgiving or, you know, maybe November or December or something. And we were running low on funds and we had had a group kind of meeting every, all the missionaries or volunteers were together. And you're like, all right, guys, normally this is like our cushy time when people are donating lots, it's getting close to the holidays, but we're running really low. So we all need to pray that donations come in. And I remember going and, you know, I was whatever, my early twenties. And before bed that night, I was like, God, $5,000 would be nice. And kind of just whatever, like forgot about it. And uh, the next morning we came together for morning prayer and you're like, so a $5,000 check came in. And I was like, oh, I think I prayed for that. And you were like, Kelly, I was like, what? You're like, why didn't you ask for more? <laughs> yeah. People have been bringing that incident up to me a lot in like the last month. And I oh, don't yeah? know why, like I'd almost completely forgotten it, but yeah, we were literally having a meeting to cut stipends, Oh, you know, mm -hmm. just cause it was like, we just don't have enough money to operate right now, mm, you know? Mm -hmm. And that had always, and you were also there on a year where we were growing. Like yeah. it was the most new missionaries we'd ever had before. That was probably half the problem. And <laughs> I just had never managed anything like that before. And then, yeah, sure enough, the morning, we were going to have the meeting right after morning prayer, but I already checked the mail. Meeting was irrelevant before it started. You know, it <laughs> ridiculous, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I, that always stuck out to me as an example. Um, as I started to think about what spiritual poverty meant, like blessed are the poor in spirit, like what more does that even mean? But to be able to have that same, um, inner space, that emptiness, the poverty that we sometimes hold within ourselves and just holding it up to God, the divine, whatever. And just like, I, I need you to help me here. Like, I, I don't know where my funding is going to come from. I don't know where my strength is going to come from to face this pandemic, this diagnosis, this grief, this, you know, whatever the difficulty is, but to come forward empty handed and say, I, I need help. I need you. And seeing that our dependence on something outside of ourselves is actually a really wonderful thing, even though it can feel really uncomfortable. I feel like where that is in my life today is an interpersonal situation. Hmm. Like when you know you need to talk to someone about something and there's you can't imagine them receiving it well and you don't know what to say and you're really horrified by the consequences, but you know you have to talk to them. Yeah. You know? Mm -hmm. um, that's where it seems most relevant to me these days, but it's just like, yeah. And, and when, even while it's happening, it's like, you're, I half know I'm like, and this is really good for me. Cause now I have to go to God and ask for direct help right now. You yeah. Know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I can't, you can help. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. 
So my last question, or maybe it's a second to last question is um, what kinds of dreams and ideas do you have brewing for the future? Like where would you like Simple House to be in 10 years or even you personally? All right, well, we have two things happening right now that are worth mentioning. Well, maybe three. We just started a new podcast called The Simpleton Podcast. You can look it up wherever you find podcasts. Um, awesome. So I'm, I'm, that's interesting. Uh, if you liked this conversation, you'd probably like that. But then the other two things we're starting is over the years, we've been serving like homeless people that are like just very mentally ill, mm-hmm. you know, like schizophrenia on the streets. It's, it's, we've worked with them years sometimes and not been able to get them to get food stamps or an ID or public housing. Sometimes they had those things and gave them up voluntarily due to paranoia or due to some other issue. And in three different cases, we basically bought them a house, hmm. you know, um, which was not doable in DC because of the housing prices, but in Kansas City, it was doable. So we ended up owning three different units where we've sheltered about seven people who were, they're kind of like, as we close mental asylums in the US, these people went to the streets, hmm. right? So historically, these people would have been in mental institutions, but now they're just homeless, right? And in some cases, they're very old. Like there was a 70 year old woman who'd been homeless, you know, been outdoors for a decade, you know. Um, So what we're going to do is now that we have three units and I'm tired of managing them, it's also hard to be someone's friend and be their landlord at the same time. We're going to spend it off into a new project we're calling Just Housing. Hmm. Actually, we're in the middle of deciding what the name is. We're in the middle of forming the board of director now. It's either going to be simply housing or just home, I think are the two leading candidates for names. But this idea that we need housing units for these people, Mm. you know, there's many reasons why people are homeless. There's addiction, there's um, science people run from the law as homeless, like they get released on prison and violate their parole and then they're living in the woods with the homeless. But there's also people who um, are just mentally ill, you know, and they're not on any substance at all, but they're they're living out there in the woods. And those are the people we're focusing on. Mm. Uh, our other hope is to found a new simple house. Um, we're kind of getting squared away for that, but we're still praying for new missionaries. Mm. So mm-hmm. if we can get our recruiting up, that should happen too in the next year. So those are the two big projects we're hoping for. Yeah. Do you already have another location selected or would it be in one of these cities? I, I don't want to announce where I'm thinking okay. of because I don't want people lobbying me for it too much, you know? Fair enough. Um, mm-hmm. But I'll tell you what, it won't be any farther apart than Kansas City and DC. <laughs> Fair We're enough. tired of making that drive. <laughs> Got it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's And we're halfway in between would be nice. Yeah, yeah. So if people wanted to find out more information, whether about volunteering or supporting you guys or just learning more about what you do, where should they go? Simplehouse.org. And um, if you want more like the up-to-date, we have a newsletter and we also have the podcast that'll kind of be keeping people up to date what's going on. Awesome. Thanks so much. Thank, thank you, Kelly. I feel like I don't know how to do an interview that well. And thank you for having me and muddling it through with me. Oh, absolutely. No, it's always a gift. I mean, to have conversations, not only with old friends, but also with um, people who are trying to do good in the world, even if we're not sure of, you know, like, this is a, an experiment Christianity, like you said. I mean, that's all of our lives. And so I think that's a beautiful way to um, explore well, living let me, life. Let me ask you, like when I met you, you were, you know, you're from 
South North, Dakota. South Dakota, mm -hmm. right? Small town. I read your resume. I think you had a 4.0, you know, in college and probably high school. And then you've been through a lot since you left Simple House, mm -hmm. right? And now you're in this really interesting space too, where you're kind of deconstructed some of the basics of spirituality and just the basic building blocks. I, I hate, I like the word deconstruction is always a little bit interesting to me because it's like you deconstruct the unnecessary mm -hmm. to get to the fundamental and then hopefully you build back up, mm -hmm. you know, but you don't, but well, like in Catholicism, I think it's a problem that sometimes we get, we have so many traditions, some of which are fundamental, some of which aren't, Right. you know, and right. trying to get to a point where you can sort that is quite the thing, you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I like to use the analogy or image of um, this like divine spark that started, you know, basically any major world religion where there was some sort of encounter with the divine that, you know, whether you were Jesus or Buddha or Muhammad, um, that there was something profound there. And, you know, speaking from my own Christian tradition, you know, there was the original 12 followers and then the other followers who were like, oh my gosh, guys, look at the spark in the debt, you know, this flame in the desert that we're all so excited about and have been personally transformed by. And so we start to gather more people, but as more people come, you know, and there's this flame out in the desert, you have to start, you know, building some structure around it. Like, how are we going to gather around this flame? Like, oh, let's all like sing this song together about the flame and let's have, you know, all our liturgies and our institutions and structures slowly get built up because you know when there's thousands of people coming on pilgrimage to see this flame in the desert um you know we got to figure out like how, what do we do with all of these people well we better set up a few rules because sometimes people are getting into brawls and we shouldn't be arguing about you know is the flame yellow or gold i don't know you know just the simple things like that but sometimes that institution gets so um fossilized that um we get more concerned with, are we singing the right song, you know, as we circle around this divine spark and all of the um, stoneworks that are now surrounding it, that sometimes we forget about the original flame. And so I think the important thing is to recognize that all, all of our liturgies, all of our um, rules and institutions and the things that we create around it are spiritual practices. You got like the rosary and you got the liturgy, the hours and scripture and all these things, which are so wonderful, but they're all trying to point us to that one center, that one source. And so it's like, use those in as much as they serve encounter with that divine spark. Yes, use what serves. I think that's very valuable. Yeah. You know? Have you, are you hearing the same thing I am? I'm hearing a lot of like secular talk these days that's kind of pro-religion in the sense that it's like anything that people have been passing down for thousands of years mm -hmm. must have some value evolutionarily. Mm -hmm. Meaning like, or it wouldn't have, they wouldn't have spent all this time passing it down. Mm-hmm. You know, it wouldn't, mm -hmm. it would, it, there must be something necessary about it, you know? Yeah. Um, and I think that's true. And I'm glad about that. I'm glad that people like aren't dismissing religion necessarily out of hand. They're thinking there must be something good in it or it wouldn't have continued to survive, you mm -hmm. know? But at the same time, I want the scandal of Christ. <laughs> like there's dynamite in it. There's, mm -hmm. there's things that are like crazy sounding yet very true. Like Jesus was so good, we had to kill him because he was messing things up. 
Yeah, there is something you know very I mean? scandalous. And that, I mean, like you said earlier, that um, some of the things that he said, we spend our lives trying to explain away, <laughs> you know, like, no, but he did. I mean, this is what he meant. Like, you don't really have to give everything away. Like, well, <laughs> well, then but what he does also that he also meant the things that sound mean, mm. as weird as that is to say, mm. you know, I've always been wanting to do these Bible studies on a King David in the Old Testament, a man after God's own heart. Like he should be maybe the saint, ultimate saint. And wow, was he crazy? You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but anyway, I'm I'm sorry, off track again. But anyway, thank you so much, Kelly. Yeah, yeah, I'm so thankful for our conversation and your willingness to join us here. And um, yeah, please, everyone, I encourage you to check out a Simple House. They do great work and um, definitely is one of my um, organizations and charities of choice. So, thank wonderful. you. Thanks, Clark. <laughs>